Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Tales to Terrify, Crime City Central, and Protecting Project Pulp. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. This is the Starship Sova. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to show 262. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello everyone, I hope everyone is fine and dandy. Well, what can I say, I grumble, week in, week out, I grumble here about the weather. And you know, it's a little bit wet, it's a little bit, my God man, you's there on the east coast of America. That, honestly, my thoughts go out. If you're over there and you have been through that, you have been through the mill, honestly, you know what I mean? Just hang in there, you know, if you've got no power, you could obviously not listen to this one. It's just, Wow. I'm not going to grumble about the weather no more, honestly. Just what a time you're having. You've certainly been through the mill. So my thoughts go out. Everyone who's kind of been affected by that sandy storm, just awesome. The pictures we're seeing on the telly of like New York, you know, and around that area. Oh, man, just staggering, you know, staggering. So, and, you know, good dropping a little hint there is going into the kind of Joe Haldeman lecture, which is coming up in a couple of weeks' time. It's actually probably only about a week now, if you're listening to this. It's, I was speaking to Joe just to try and get the logistics and get everything worked out, you know, about the show. And they said they're just hunkered down, you know, riding out this storm. So hopefully everything's okay with Joe and Gay's wife. You know, it, um, it's affecting just thousands of people. And trust us, when I, you know, like I say, had a little interview just to chat with him over on Skype. And this is Joe Haldeman, do you know what I mean? This is the guy who kind of wrote Forever War, which is... Up there, number one, you know, joint number one with uh, Flowers for Algernon, you know, so Daniel Keyes. This is Joe Halvard who wrote that book. And it was just like talking to Bradbury for me. It was like a, such a special moment. And it was only, like you say, making sure everything was singing and dancing. So when we come on the 11th of November, you know, it's, it's all working. So hopefully you can join us on the 11th of November. That would be fantastic. Please, you know, that would be amazing. Another little bit of news, just, you know, while, while we're on the news, before we get into what's coming up, Tales to Terrify, Volume 1, the book is out, out today, the 31st of October. There is three flavours for your little enjoyment. There is the paperback, the, which is $10.99 or $17.60, the hardback, which is $16.99, $27, these are US dollars, and the ebook, which comes in all different formats and flavours, $3.99 and six dollars forty and actually those are the same prices that have always been you know never kind of i don't think we've ever put the books up in you know when when starships over stories and it's actually not d that's doing this d's moved on d's now handed his notice in with his job he's worked for his advertising agency 
and he's colouring in comics, you know, doing the Batman comics and everything like that. So, and Dave was just like swamped off, you know. And I think Volume Three was kind of, you know, just stopped Dean. He's trying to just far too much work. But up steps Scott. Scott Dinsdale's been, and Scott's been with. Actually, he's been helping us out. For quite a while there now, doing, you know, like the Joe Haldeman, the graphics for the PowerPoints and everything for these lectures, you know, the lectures would we do for Amy as well. And, you know, we did one time travel and everything. It's been Scott that's kind of sorted all that out. So, you know, I dropped Scott a little line. Scott, would you like to, you know, and yep, there he goes and <laughs> got him in. And it's just like fantastic. So I just want a, a big thank you to Scott, a big thank you to Larry there, and to Harry who's you know sorted everything out. And I've just kind of took a little back seat, which is probably the best way of working with me. Just leave me alone, let me just kind of put him in the corner. And we've got a cover by Ben Wooten, you know, like Ben who's done some fantastic art for Starships over. Ben Wooten's done the, the actual cover of this story. Or this book. And Larry had this straight away, you know, because it's Larry's baby tears to terrify you. Just get, give it to Larry. Larry will sort it out. And Larry had this kind of idea what he wanted to, you know, this kind of almost tears from the crypt style looking. And Ben's just come up with a fantastic book. So if you come over to any of the sites, it's all littered over there, the, the kind of the button, buy the book there now, and then it'll take you to the, the, the special site that Josh has set up. Josh, again, thank you so much. You know, just everyone just mugging in here. And what we can achieve is just staggering. Do you know what I mean? When you get a look at this book as well, the cover and the contents of, you know, what's going inside. It's, you know, there's over 20 terrifying tales, it says. That's just fantastic. And I love the the side Josh actually done, you know what I mean? Like, all fun. it's just got this, like, kind of octopusy thing crawling at the bottom. Fantastic. So there you go. Please, you know, do support. This, this is how we kind of keep our shows going. Do support this and get that book. Even if you don't read horror, man, come on, man. This is Larry we're talking about. So I'll give you a little heads up what's coming in today's show. We have JJ Campanella with his science news. Then the main fiction is a Peter Watts story, Nimbus, no less. Yes, Peter Watts. The last time we played a Peter Watts story was Malik. And that was a few months ago, and it was narrated by Nick Cam. And since Starships of Us, you know, has been doing these stories, which the first one was Michael Moorcock's London Bone, we've never had a bigger download than that Malik. I think it came in it first week, 25,000 downloads, which is staggering. Do you know what I mean? It's just awesome, that. So, it just, you can't, what can you say? It's Peter Watts, to be quite honest. So do look out for that. Then right at the end, we've got Cheapskate, another fantastic review by Adam as well. So that is today's show. So we will jump straight in with JJ Campanella and his science news, Jim Squire. Greetings and ablations, my fine listeners, and welcome to this October 2012 science news update. I'm your host for this stunningly enchanting science podcast, Jim Campanella. I'm going to start with almost no preliminaries tonight. I have way too many stories and unlimited amount of time to blather in, so let me just dive into the fray, so to speak. The first story of the evening was sent to me by listener Mark Zanfardino. It's actually related to a story that I talked about several months back when I told you guys that the mathematics for constructing a time crystal had just been completed. That's a crystal with four dimensions. Dr. Frank Wilczek, the Nobel Prize-winning physicist at MIT, demonstrated, at least mathematically, that a time crystal can exist. Well, a space-time crystal. 
but he had no idea how to physically create such a space-time crystal in a practical way. Well, the story that Mark sent me does that theoretical time crystal story one better. It describes the work of an international team of scientists led by researchers with the U.S. Department of Energy at Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory, who have actually proposed how to construct a space-time crystal and the implications that such an object may have. The research paper on this work was published in the journal Physical Review Letters in June of this year, and the investigation was led by Dr. Ziang Zhang. What Dr. Zhang and company are proposing is the construction of a clock that will last forever. And when I say forever, I literally mean forever. It will be a clock that would outlast the heat death of the universe. And that is about as forever as you are going to get. In order to get such a clock to work, you would need to construct a 4D space-time crystal. Zhang explains how you would do this. Quote, The electric field of an ion trap holds charged particles in place, and Coulomb repulsion causes them to spontaneously form a spatial ring crystal. Under the application of a weak static magnetic field, this ring-shaped ion crystal will begin a rotation that will never stop. The persistent rotation of trapped ions produces temporal order, leading to the formation of a space-time crystal at the lowest quantum energy state. Unquote. Okay, I will admit I am neither an engineer nor a physicist, so I am not entirely sure what that means in a practical laboratory sense. Zhang says that such a space-time crystal will show periodic structures in both space and time with ultra-cold ions rotating in one direction, even at the lowest energy state. Here's another quote from Zhang. Quote, Because the space-time crystal is already at its lowest quantum energy state, its temporal order, or timekeeping, will theoretically persist even after the rest of our universe reaches entropy, thermodynamic equilibrium, or heat death, unquote. In short, a clock using such a space-time crystal to keep time would last until the end of the universe and beyond. According to the article by Zhang, a spatial ring of trapped ions in persistent rotation will periodically reproduce itself in time, forming a temporal analog of an ordinary spatial crystal. With a periodic structure in both space and time, the result is this space-time crystal. When I read the article, I remember thinking that it sounded like a perpetual motion machine to me. And oddly enough, Zhang addresses that issue and says that it's not a perpetual motion machine because a superconductor or even a normal metal ring can support persistent electron currents in its quantum ground state under the right conditions. He also points out that, of course, electrons in a metal lack spatial order and therefore can't be used to make a space-time crystal. Zhang states that the crystal is not creating perpetual motion because being at the lowest quantum energy state, there is no energy output. And you may remember that is exactly what Dr. Frank Wilczek said when he wrote about the theoretical aspects of such a crystal. Zhang finishes stating that it might even be possible now to make a space-time crystal using their scheme and state-of-the-art ion traps. He is actively seeking collaborators with the proper ion trapping facilities and expertise. Zhang says, quote, The main challenge will be to cool an ion ring to its ground state. This can be overcome in the near future with the development of ion trap technologies. As there has never been a space-time crystal before, most of its properties will be unknown, and we will have to study them. 
Such studies should deepen our understandings of phase transitions and symmetry breaking, unquote. I discussed this with a couple of colleagues. They actually had a couple of decent points. I don't know that Zhang ever actually addresses. The first is that at the heat death of the universe, the temperature of the universe will be at absolute zero. And that pretty much means that there should be no movement of ions or electrons or much of anything else. So it's not entirely clear to me how you can get this thing to work when there's absolutely no molecular movement. I mean, that is the definition of, of absolute zero. That's, that's one. And the other one is, is that even at that point, at the end of the universe, uh, at heat death, you won't be able to actually get any output from the clock. The clock may work, but because there's no energy available, there's no way to actually uh, get it to tell you the time. That may seem like a very silly point, but eh, why not? Anyway, it sounds pretty amazing to me and barely possible, but we will see what happens in the next few years with this, I guess. The next story is a quick update on the arsenic-loving bacteria story from a year ago. If you remember, Dr. Wolf Simon reported that she had found bacteria in Mono Lake in California that thrived on arsenic, which is toxic to just about all forms of life on Earth because it chemically competes with phosphorus, which we need to make DNA and RNA. Wolf Simon concluded that the bacteria must be replacing their phosphates with arsenates in order to survive, which was an amazing thing if true. She went to the popular press with her results barely before it came out in the scientific journal Science, and she has been at best criticized and at worst ostracized over the last year for her conclusions. Unfortunately, other scientists have not been able to support her conclusions with genetic experiments. In fact, finally in the last several weeks, Dr. Michael Elias of Weissman Institute of Science in Israel has published a paper in the journal Nature explaining Wolf-Simon's results and why her bacteria were able to survive the nasty conditions in Mono Lake. Elias has been studying proteins that cells use to pull in phosphate through their membranes and into cells. The Israeli scientists suspected that Wolf-Simon's Halomonas bacteria somehow fished out the phosphate available from a sea of arsenate while selectively leaving the arsenic behind. So he and his colleagues examined the structures of five proteins, including two from the mono-lake strain of Halomonas, that transport phosphate from the environment and into cells. All the proteins contain a similar kind of molecular bond that latches onto phosphate, as well as arsenate. But structurally, that bond is slightly different in phosphate versus arsenate. Elias says, quote, It's really a tiny difference, but it has a big consequence. Basically, with phosphate, the bond is almost perfect, while with the slightly larger arsenate, the bond is much harder to make. That difference lets Halomonas take up phosphate molecules about 4,500 times more efficiently than it takes up arsenic. Unquote. That explains why Wolf Simons found her bacteria could survive on arsenic. The media that she grew her bacteria on had trace amounts of phosphate, while it had huge amounts of arsenic but the bacteria were able to selectively transport in the phosphate and survive under the essentially toxic conditions because it could concentrate the small amounts of nutrients that it absolutely needed. So these results do support the original claim was not correct. This teaches us lessons not only about science, that things are sometimes more complex than they seem at first, but also that you should be very careful to check all your scientific claims before you try to go public with them in the popular press. The next story, again, shows that scientists can be quite petty. 
and that it is not isolated to just biologists. A Japanese team reported September 27th in the Journal of the Physical Society of Japan that bombarding molecules of bismuth with a stream of zinc ions had generated the periodic element number 113. Now, number 113 was first seen in passing when element number 115 was created in 2003 by a Russian-U.S. team. It was again reported by this team in passing at the Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory in California in 2007 when they bombarded the element Neptunium with a stream of calcium. There is now an argument as to who has the naming rights for the new element. The Japanese team insists they do because they have clearer evidence that their element was indeed 113. But the Russian-American team at Lawrence Livermore say that they have the naming rights because they showed the first evidence of element 113, even if their original data was not perfect. Until the naming rights are determined by the International Union of Pure and Applied Chemistry, which could take years, the element will continue to be known as Ununtrium. That chemical name is Latin for element 113, which it may be for quite a while. Personally, I side with the Japanese on this, only because I hope they'll call it something cool like Gojerium. Here are two very unrelated stories on what could make animals smarter, and maybe people. First up, it was reported in the Journal of Experimental Biology this month by Dr. Ken Lekowiak of the University of Calgary that chocolate fed to snails can make them smarter. It's thought that dark chocolate eaten by humans has a beneficial effect on memory, but there have been some controversial stories on the subject. Lekowiak and his undergraduate researcher decided to use snails to see if there was any evidence that the flavonoids in chocolate were able to aid memory in an animal model. This is because it's so much harder to study memory formation in humans or mammals because there are so many factors involved that you simply can't control for. In the paper, Lekowiak states that the mollusks can be trained to remember a simple activity, to keep their breathing tubes closed when immersed in deoxygenated water. He explains that pond snails usually breathe through their skins, but when oxygen levels fall, they extend the breathing tube above the surface to supplement the oxygen supply. However, the snails can be trained to remember to keep the breathing tube closed in deoxygenated water by gently tapping it when they try to open it. And the strength of the memory depends on the training regime. I have a vague memory of explaining this before to you guys, but I can't remember the exact story. Anyway, Lekowiak treated snails with a 15 milligram per mil concentration of epicatechin. They then performed half-hour training sessions in deoxygenated water to allow the snails to form intermediate-term memories, that is, lasting less than three hours but not long enough to have long-term memories, that is, lasting 24 hours or more. Amazingly, when Lekowiak plunged the mollusks into deoxygenated water to test their memories a day later, they remembered to keep their breathing tubes closed. And when he provided the snails with two training sessions, the animals were able to remember to keep their breathing tubes shut more than three days later. Epicatechin had boosted the mollusks' memories and extended the duration but how strong were these chemically-induced memories? Having trained the snails, Lekowiak tried to replace it with a memory where the snails could open their breathing tubes. However, instead of learning the new memory, the flavanol-trained snails 
stubbornly kept their breathing tubes shut. The epicatechin-induced memory was too strong to be extinguished. With his results, the Koyak is now keen to look directly at the results that epicatechin has on memory neurons. He states, quote, The cognitive effects of a half bar of dark chocolate could even help your grades. Good news for chocoholics the world over, unquote. Note that we are talking about dark chocolate here, not milk chocolate, which lacks all those lovely, healthy flavanols. So be warned, you'll get nothing but fat eating Hershey Kisses. Now, the second intelligence-enhancing story of the night is related to global warming. It seems that global warming is generally thought of as being a bad thing. But in a story that sounds like a Jurassic Park plotline, it seems that the heat of global warming may make lizards smarter. Doctors Joshua Emil and Richard Schein from the University of Sydney reported in the journal Biology Letters this month that although global warming may be bad for many species, perhaps some lizards may thrive again as their ancient sauropod ancestors did as the temperatures rise. Emil and Schein wanted to know whether incubation temperatures affected young lizards' ability to learn, not all that different from the snail experiments. They also wanted to know whether an increased ability to learn would be relevant during a life-threatening situation. They collected female Australian three-lined skinks, which were full of eggs, and took them back to their lab in Sydney. They incubated the eggs at cold temperatures, about 16 degrees centigrade, and hot temperatures, about 22 degrees centigrade. When the babies were hatched, they tested their lizard IQs. Each lizard enclosure had two small hiding retreats, but the entrance to one of them was blocked by a piece of plexiglass. For each test, a baby lizard was placed right in the middle between the two retreats under a little plastic cover. As soon as the experimenter lifted the cover, he tickled the lizard's tail with a paintbrush. This, of course, scared the heck out of the baby lizard, and it ran for a hiding place. The scientists then counted the number of times that the hatchling chose the wrong place to hide and the time it took to finally find the available retreat. They repeated these trials for four days, four times a day, with each lizard and then compared the reptile's success rates through time. In short, they were testing whether the lizards were learning which was the safest place to hide. All the lizard babies learned just fine and made fewer mistakes the more tests that were performed. But... As time went by, the heat-incubated hatchlings learned faster and made fewer mistakes than the cold-incubated ones. The result was completely independent of the lizard's sex or size or ability to run. The authors find the result interesting, but their biggest concern was that species such as the skinks he tested would end up having a huge advantage over other related species that physically need cooler conditions for their eggs to develop. They say in their paper, quote, for such heat-sensitive taxa, increasingly warm nests may generate hatchlings that are unlikely to possess the kind of behavioral flexibility needed to confront novel challenges, and these less flexible species may undergo extinction, unquote. It's just more evidence that global warming, aside from its source, whether human or natural, changes ecological and developmental relationships at all levels. While I've got you on a depressing note, let me just keep that theme up with a bisphenol A update. Every time I think that BPA is about the nastiest substance on Earth, another study comes along and shows an even uglier side to it. 
This next story comes out of the lab of Dr. Catherine Vandevoort at the University of California, Davis. She studied female monkeys that were exposed to BPA in the womb, and she found that they were at higher risk for abnormal egg development compared with those not exposed to BPA. In female monkeys, as in humans, egg formation does begin before birth. Additionally, because the monkeys in the study did not grow to reproductive age, it's not clear what effect the egg abnormalities could have on their ability to reproduce later in life. Vandervoort states, quote, Anything that disrupts that process of early egg development is going to have an impact later in life, unquote. She concludes that the egg developmental abnormalities they observed could lead to an increased risk for miscarriages and birth defects and a reduced pool of viable eggs. If that's not bad enough, this story comes hot on the heels of another story that came out a few months ago from a collaborative BPA study done by the CDC and Harvard School of Public Health. Mothers with higher BPA levels in their urine during pregnancy tended to have three-year-old girls with more anxious and depressed behavior and poorer emotional control and inhibition, researchers found. A similar effect was not seen in boys whose mothers showed high levels of BPA. And also, BPA exposure of a child after it was born had no effect on behavioral and emotional control, according to the study. This is all further evidence that we are destroying our species with the toxic compounds that we are putting into our environment daily. What can you do if you're pregnant? Well, two things. First, avoid known sources of BPA by making relatively easy choices, such as not eating packaged or canned foods. Also, stay away from handling cash register receipts. Second, I think we need to start telling our legislators that it is more important that the human species continue to reproduce than the plastics industry makes money. We need to do away with BPA. Canada had the right idea by banning it. Why is it taking so long for the U.S. and other countries to do the same? This may soon become an issue of human survival if we're not careful. There's no telling what will happen with the now upcoming generation of humans. And even if you're not worried about humans, you should start worrying about animals. Mammals that are exposed have the same problems and are having the same problems as humans are. I've invoked the SF horror movie Children of Man before, and I'll do it again. We worry about overpopulation in the world far too much and too often. And I'm just saying that we may overlook our own mortal doom by worrying about too many children and not looking at why we do not have even more kids out there than we do. Whoa, man, what a downer. Dude, you really need to bring it down a few notches. People listen to you for entertainment, man, not to be preached out and scared. Like, you need to seriously chillax. Okay, so you want to be entertained? I think I have a weird entertaining story for you. The last story of the night comes from Dr. J. Lee Nelson of the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Center in Seattle and the journal Plus One. Nelson found male DNA in the brain tissues of elderly deceased females who he was examining for evidence of Alzheimer's disease. He concluded that the most likely place that the DNA came from was from fetal cells provided by the women's male children. Nelson discovered bits and pieces of male-only genes in the brains of 18 to 26 women who died without neurological disease. The male DNA was spread throughout their brains. 
The study couldn't distinguish if the DNA was from intact, functional male brain cells, though in a separate test of brain tissue from a different woman, Nelson did spot nuclei from male cells in the brain. Earlier studies in mice hinted that these foreign cells can integrate themselves into the brain and start functioning as nerve cells. Cells from fetuses have been found in liver, kidney, and other tissues of once pregnant women, but no one has ever detected such a thing in the brain before. Nelson says, quote, What's interesting is how the DNA could have gotten there. Male cells from a fetus could have broken through the blood-brain barrier, a wall that protects the fragile brain from pathogens in the blood. But that shouldn't be possible, unquote. If the male DNA did come from a fetus during pregnancy, then that genetic material stuck around in the brain for decades after birth. The average age for the women studied at the time of their death was 70. Nelson states, quote, maybe these are with women for a lifetime, unquote. By the way, if daughters are feeling left out here, don't worry. It's probable that daughters leave a mark as well on their moms. Presumably, mothers also carry a daughter's genetic material in their brains. It's just the presence of a Y chromosome makes it easier to spot male DNA than female DNA, which is what the mother is already. Now, if you find that funky and disturbing, then I'll go you one further. It's not just mom who has your DNA and maybe cells. Cells from several generations could actually mingle in a single offspring. Because cells also flow from mother to fetus, and a pregnant woman possesses cells from both her mother and her child, that child could inherit his grandmother's cells. Nelson has no idea whether the fetal cells could be beneficial, harmful, or just pointless in the mother's body, though. They may be a good thing. In a follow-up experiment, Nelson found that women with Alzheimer's had less foreign DNA in their brains than women with healthy brains, hinting that these cells from their kids might offer protection from Alzheimer's. Nelson cautions, however, that, quote, those results are too preliminary to be conclusive. In tissues outside the brain, there is preliminary evidence that fetal cells may affect risk for cancer and autoimmune diseases, unquote. Now, what can we conclude from all this? Well, when a mother says to you, I'll always carry you in my heart, dear, she is being more literal than she can possibly imagine. Whoa, mind-blowing dude. Yes, yes it is. Well, that's all for me for now. As always, take care. Remember to call your mom today. And I hope I've inspired some of you. Until next time, this is Jim Campanella. There you go. Jim, as I say, always a pleasure, never a chore. Got this one in over, over to us early as well this time. Jim, thank you so much. So next up is Tales to Terrify. No, it's not mine. <laughs> it's, been, it's been a long, long night. So next up is the main fiction, and it's by Peter Watts, and it's called Nimbus. Now, Nimbus came out in 1994, and I think it may have been the second story that Peter Watts wrote, or Peter Watts, you know, sold. Like I say, the last one he wrote was Malik in 2011. The one before that was The Things, then The Island, which we played as well. So, But this one is going right back to 1994, Nimbus. And it first came out in On Spec, which was the summer 1994 edition. Then Pete put it into his 10 Monkeys 10 Minutes collection, which came out in 2001. 
This story is narrated by Charles Berman. Charles says he's done a great deal of voice recording for the past podcast Casting Wax and several other original radio series. And I've actually got Charles on the District of Wonders. He's sprinkled throughout District of Wonders as well. So Charles, thank you so much for this recording. So the Starship Sova is very proud to present. Nimbus by Peter Watts, read by Charles Berman. She's been out there for hours now listening to the clouds. I can see the Radio Shack receiver balanced on her knees. I can see the headphone wires snaking up and cutting her off from the world. Or connecting her, I suppose. Jess is hooked into the sky now, in a way I'll never be. She can hear it talking. The clouds advance, threatening grey anvils and mountains boiling in ominous slow motion. And the phones fill her head with alien grumbles and moans. God, she looks like her mother. I catch her profile, and for a moment it is Anne there... Gently chiding, of course not, Jess, there aren't any spirits, they're just clouds. But now I see her face, and eight years have passed in a flash, and I know this can't be Anne. Anne knew how to smile. I should go out and join her. It's still safe enough, we've got a good half hour before the storm hits. Not that it's really going to hit us, it's just passing through, they say, on its way to some other target. Still, I wonder if it knows we're in the way. I wonder if it cares. I will join her. For once, I will not be a coward. My daughter sits five meters away in our own backyard, and I am damn well going to be there for her. It's the least I can do before I go. I wonder if that will mean anything to her. An aftermath before the Enlightenment. It was as though somebody had turned the city upside down and shaken it. We waded through a shallow sea of detritus, broken walls, slabs of torn roofing, toilets and sofas and shattered glass. I walked behind Anne, Jess bouncing on my shoulders, making happy gurgling noises. Just over a year old, not quite talking yet, but plenty old enough for continual astonishment. You could see it in her eyes. Every blown newspaper, every bird, every step was a new experience in wonder. Also, every loaded shotgun, every trigger-happy National Guardsman. This was a time when people still thought they owned things. They saw their homes strewn across two city blocks, and the enemy they feared was not the weather, but each other. Hurricanes were accidents, freaks of nature. The experts were still blaming volcanoes and the greenhouse effect for everything. Looters, on the other hand, were real. They were tangible. They were a problem with an obvious solution. The volunteers' shelter squatted in the distance like a circus tent at Armageddon. A tired-looking woman inside had given us shovels and pitchforks and directed us to the nearest pile of unmanned debris. We began to pitch pieces of someone's life into an enormous blue dumpster. Anne and I worked side by side, stopping occasionally to pass Jessica back and forth. I wondered what new treasures I was about to unearth. Some priceless family heirloom, miraculously spared? A complete collection of Jethro Tull CDs? Just a game, of course. The whole area had been combed. The owners had come and despaired of salvage. There was only wreckage beneath the wreckage. Still, every now and then, I thought I saw something shining in the dirt. A bottle cap, or a gum wrapper, or a Rolex. My pitchfork punched through a chunk of plaster and slid into something soft. It dropped suddenly under my weight as if lubricated. It stopped. I heard the muted hiss of escaping gas. Something smelled, very faintly, of rotten meat. This isn't what I think it is. The crews have already been there. They used trained dogs and infrared scopes, and they've already found all the bodies. They couldn't have missed anything. There's nothing here but wood and plaster and cement. 
I tightened my grip on the pitchfork, pulling up on the shaft. The tines rose up from the plaster, slick, dark, wet. Anne was laughing. I couldn't believe it. I looked up, but she wasn't looking at me or the pitchfork or the coagulating stain. She was looking across the wreckage to a Ford pickup, loaded with locals and their rifles, inching its way down a pathway cleared in the road. Get a load of the bumper, she said, oblivious to my discovery. There was a bumper sticker on the driver's side. I saw the caricature of a storm cloud inside the classic red circle with a diagonal slash. And a slogan. A warning. To whom it may concern. Clouds, we're gonna kick your ass. Jess takes off the headphones as I join her. She touches a button on the receiver. Cryptic wails, oddly familiar, rise from a speaker on the front of the device. We sit for a moment without speaking, letting the clouds wash over us. Everything about her is so pale. I can barely see her eyebrows. Do they know where it's headed? Jess asks at last. I shake my head. There's Hanford, but they've never gone after a reactor before. They say it might be trying to get up enough steam to go over the mountains. Maybe it's going after Vancouver or SeaTac again. I tap the box on her knees. Hey, it might be laying plans even as you speak. You've been listening to that thing long enough. You should know what it's saying by now. A distant flicker of sheet lightning strobes on the horizon. From Jessica's receiver, a dozen voices wail a discordant crescendo. Or you could even talk to it, I continue. I saw the other day they've got two ways now. Like yours, only you can send as well as receive. Jess fingers the volume control. It's just a gimmick, Dad. These things couldn't put out enough power to get heard over all the other stuff on the air. TV and radio and... She cocks her head at the sounds coming from the speaker. Besides, nobody understands what they're saying anyway. Ah, but they could understand us. I say, trying for a touch of mock drama. Think so? Her voice is expressionless, indifferent. I push on anyway. Talking at least helps paper over my fear a bit. Sure, the big ones could understand anyway. Storm this size must have an IQ in the six digits, easy. I suppose, Jess says. Inside, something tears a little. Doesn't it matter to you? She just looks at me. Don't you want to know, I say? We're sitting here underneath this huge thing that nobody understands. We don't know what it's doing or why. And you sit there listening while it shouts at itself, and you don't seem to care that it changed everything overnight. But of course, she doesn't remember that. Her memory doesn't go back to when we thought that clouds were just clouds. She never knew what it was like to rule the world. And she never expects to. My daughter is indifferent to defeat. Suddenly, unbearably, I just want to hold her. God, Jess, I'm sorry we messed up so badly. With effort, I control myself. I just wish you could remember the way it was. Why? she asks. What was so different? I look at her astonished. Everything. It doesn't sound like it. They say we never understood the weather. There were hurricanes and tornadoes even before, and sometimes they'd smash whole cities, and nobody could stop them then either. So what if it happens because the sky's alive or just because it's, you know, random? Because your mother is dead, Jess. And after all these years, I still don't know what killed her. Was it just blind chance? Was it the reflex of some slow, stupid animal that was only scratching an itch? Can the sky commit murder? It matters, is all I tell her, even if it doesn't make a difference. The front is almost directly overhead now, like the mouth of a great black cave crawling across the heavens. West, all is clear. Above, the squall line tears the sky into jagged halves. East, the world is a dark, murky green. I feel so vulnerable out here. I glance back over my shoulder. The armored house crouches at our back, only the biggest trees left to keep it company. It's been eight years, and the storms still haven't managed to dig us out. 
They got Mexico City and Berlin and the whole damn golden horseshoe. But our little house hangs in there like a festering cyst embedded in the landscape. Then again, they probably just haven't noticed us yet. Reprieved. The thing in the sky had gone to sleep, at least in our corner of the world. The source of its awareness, sources, rather, for they were legion, had convected into the stratosphere and frozen, a billion crystalline motes of suspended intellect. By the time they came back down, they'd be on the other side of the world, and it would take days for the rest of the collective consciousness to fill the gap. We used the time to ready our defenses. I was inspecting the exoskeleton the contractors had just grafted onto the house. Anne was around front, checking the storm shutters. Our home had become monstrous, an angular fortress studded with steel beams and lightning rods. A few years earlier, we would have sued anyone who did this to us. Today, we had gone into Hawk to pay for the retrofit. I looked up at the faint roar from overhead. The sun reflected off a cluster of tiny cruciform shapes drawing contrails across the sky. Cloud cedars, a common enough sight. In those days, we still thought we could fight back. They won't work, Jess said seriously at my elbow. I looked down, startled. Hey, Jess, didn't see you sneaking up on me. They're just getting the clouds mad, she said, with all the certainty a four-year-old can muster. She squinted up into the blue expanse. They're just trying to kill the, um, the messenger. I squatted down, regarded her eye to eye. And who told you that? Not her mother, anyway. That woman, talking to Mom. Not just a woman, I saw as I rounded the corner into the front yard. A couple, early twenties, mildly scruffy, both bearing slogans on their shirts. Love your mother, the woman's chest told me, over a decal of the earth from lunar orbit. The man's shirt was more verbose. Unlimited growth, the creed of carcinoma. No room for a picture on that one. Guyanists. Retreating across the lawn, facing Anne as if afraid to turn their backs. Anne was smiling and waving, the very picture of inoffense. But I really felt for the poor bastards. They probably never knew what hit them. Sometimes, when Seventh-day Adventists came calling, Anne would actually invite them in for a little target practice. It was usually the Adventists who had to leave. Did they have anything worthwhile to say, I asked her now? Not really. Anne stopped waving and turned to face me. Her smile morphed into a triumphant smirk. We're angering the sky gods, you know that? Thou shalt not inhabit a single family dwelling. Thou shalt honor thy environmental impact to keep it low. They could be right, I remarked. At least, there weren't many people around to argue the point. Most of our former neighbors had already retreated into hives. Not that their environmental impact had much to do with it. Well, I'll grant it's not as flaky as some of the things they come up with, Anne admitted. But if they're going to blame me for the revenge of the cloud demons, they damn well better have a rational argument or two waiting in the wings. I take it they didn't, she snorted. The same hokey metaphors. Gaia's leaping into action to fight the human disease. I guess hurricanes are supposed to be some sort of penicillin. No crazier than some of the things the experts say. Yeah, well, I don't necessarily believe them either. Maybe you should, I said. I mean, we sure as hell don't know what's going on. And you think they do? Just a couple of years ago, they were denying everything, remember? Life can't exist without stable, organized structure, they said. I sort of thought they'd learned a few things since then. No kidding. Anne's eyes grew round with enlightenment. And all this time, I thought they were just making up trendy buzzwords. Jess wandered between us. Anne scooped her up. Jess scrambled into her mother's shoulders and surveyed the world from dizzying adult height. I glanced back at the retreating evangelists. So, how did you handle those two? Agreed with them, Anne said. Agreed? Sure, we're a disease. Fine. 
Only some of us have mutated. She jerked a thumb at our castle. Now we're resistant to antibiotics. We are resistant to antibiotics. We've insisted ourselves like hermit crabs. We've been pruned, cut back, decimated, but not destroyed. We're only in remission. But now, outside the battlements, we're naked. Even at this range, the storm could reach out and swat us both in an instant. How can Jess sit there? I can't even enjoy sunny days anymore, I admit to her. She looks at me, and I know her perplexity is not because I can't enjoy clear skies, but because I would even think it worthy of comment. I keep talking, refusing the chronic realization that we're aliens to each other. The sky can be pure blue and sunshine, but if there's even one fluffy little cumulus bumping along, I can't help feeling watched. It doesn't matter if it's too small to think on its own, or that it'll dissipate before it gets a chance to upload. I keep thinking it's some sort of spy that is going to report back somewhere. I don't think they can see, Jess says absently. They just sense big things like cities and smokestacks. Hot spots or things that itch, that's all. The wind breathes deceptively gentle in her hair. Above us, a finger of gray vapor crawls between two towering masses of cumulonimbus. What's happening up there? A random conjunction of water droplets? A 25,000 baud data dump between processing nodes? Even after all this time, it sounds absurd. So many eloquent theories. So many explanations for our downfall. Everyone's talking about order from chaos, fluid geometry, Bioelectric microbes that live in the clouds. Complex behaviors emerging from some insane alliance of mist and electrochemistry. It looks scientific enough on paper, but spoken aloud, it always sounds like an incantation. And none of it helps. The near distance is lit with intermittent flashes of light. The storm is walking towards us on jagged, fractal legs. I feel like an insect under the heel of a descending boot. Maybe that's a positive sign. Would I be afraid if I'd really given up? Maybe. Maybe the situation is irrelevant. Maybe cowards are always afraid. Jess's receiver is crying incessantly. Whale songs, I hear myself say, and the tremor in my voice is barely discernible. Humpback whales, that's what they sound like. Jess fixes her eyes back on the sky. They don't sound like anything, Dad. It's just electricity. Only the receiver sort of... Makes it sound like something we know. Another gimmick. We've fallen from God's chosen to endangered species in only a decade, and the hustlers still won't look up from their market profiles. I can sympathize. Looming above us right now are the ones who threw us into the street. The forward overhang is almost upon us. Ten kilometers overhead, winds are screaming past each other at 60 meters a second. So far, the storm isn't even breathing hard. There was a banshee raging through the foothills. It writhed with tornadoes. Anne and I had watched the whirling black tentacles tearing at the horizon before we'd fled underground. Tornadoes were impossible during the winter. We'd been ashore just a year before. Yet here we were, huddling together as the world shook, and all our reinforcements might as well have been made of paper if one of those figments came calling. Sex is instinctive at times like those. Jeopardy reduces us to automata. There's no room for love when the genes reassert themselves. Even pleasure is irrelevant. We were just another pair of mammals, trying to maximize our fitness before the other shoe dropped. Afterwards, at least, we were still allowed to feel. We clung to each other, blind and invisible in the darkness, almost crushing each other with the weight of our own desperation. 
We couldn't stop crying. I gave silent thanks that Jess had been trapped at daycare when the front came through. I wouldn't have stood the strain of a brave facade that night. After a while, Anne stopped shaking. She lay in my arms, sniffling quietly. Dim floaters of virtual light swarmed maddeningly at the edge of my vision. The gods have come back, she said at last. Gods? Anne was usually so bloody empirical. The old ones, she said. The Old Testament gods. The Greek pantheon. Thunderbolts and fire and brimstone. We thought we'd outgrown them, you know. We thought... I felt a deep, trembling breath. I thought, she continued, I thought we didn't need them anymore. But we did. We fucked up so horribly on our own. There was nobody to keep us in line, and we trampled everything. I stroked her back. Old news, Annie. You know we've cleaned things up. Hardly any cities allow gasoline anymore. Extinctions have leveled off. I even heard the other day that rainforest biomass increased last year. That's not us, a sigh whispered across my cheek. We're no better than we ever were. We're just afraid of a spanking, like spoiled kids caught drawing naughty pictures on the walls. And we still don't know for sure if the clouds are really alive. Even if they are, that doesn't make them intelligent. Some people still say this is all just a weird side effect of chemicals in the atmosphere. We're begging for mercy, John. That's all we're doing. We breathed against dark, distant roaring for a few moments. At least we're doing something, I said at last. Maybe we're not doing it for all the enlightened reasons we should be, but at least we're cleaning up. That's something. Not enough, she said. We threw shit at something for centuries. How can a few prayers and sacrifices make it just go away and leave us alone, if it even exists, and if it does have any more brains than a flatworm? I guess you get the gods you deserve. I tried to think of something to say, some twig of false reassurance. But as usual, I wasn't fast enough. Anne picked herself up first. At least we've learned a little humility. And who knows? Maybe the gods will answer our prayers before Jess grows up. They didn't. The experts tell us now that our supplications are on indefinite hold. We're praying to something that shrouds the whole planet, after all. It takes time for such a huge system to assimilate new information. More time to react. The clouds don't live by human clocks. We swarm like bacteria to them, doubling our numbers in an instant. How fast the response from our microbial perspective? How long before the knee-jerks? The experts mumble jargon amongst themselves and guess. Decades. Maybe fifty years. This monster advancing on us now is answering a summons from the last century. The sky screams down to fight with ghosts. It doesn't see me. If it sees anything at all... It is only the afterimage of some insulting sword, decades old, that needs to be disinfected. I lean against the wind. Murky chaos sweeps across something I used to call property. The house recedes behind me. I don't dare look because I know that it must be kilometers away, and somehow I'm paralyzed. This blind, seething Medusa claws its way towards me, and its face covers the whole sky. How can I not look? Jessica... I can see her from the corner of my eye. With enormous effort, I move my head a little and she comes into focus. She's looking at the heavens, but her expression is not terrified or awed or even curious. Slowly, smooth as an oiled machine, she lowers her eyes to earth and switches off the receiver. It hardly matters anymore. The thunder is continuous. The wind is an incessant roar. The first hailstones are pelting down on us. 
If we stay out here, we'll be dead in two hours. Does she know it? Is this some sort of test? Am I supposed to prove any love for her by facing down God like this? Maybe it doesn't matter. Maybe now's the time. Maybe... Jess puts her hand on my knee. Come on, she says, like a parent. Let's go inside. I am remembering the last time I saw Anne. I have no choice. The moment traps me when I'm not looking, embeds me in a cross-section of time-stopped dead when the lightning hit ten meters behind her. The world is a flat mosaic in blinding black and white, strobe-lit, motionless. Sheets of gray water are suspended in the act of slamming the earth. Anne is just out of reach, head down, her determination as clear as a cotolith snapshot in perfect focus. She is damn well going to make it to safety, and she doesn't care what gets in her way. And then... The lightning implodes into darkness. The world jerks back into motion with a sound like Hiroshima and the stench of burning electricity. But my eyes are shut tight, still fixed on that receding instant. There is sudden pain, small fingernails gouging the flesh of my palm, and I know that Jessica has not closed her eyes, that she knows more of this moment than I can bear to. I pray for the only time in my life I pray to the sky. Please, let me be mistaken. Take someone else. Take me. Take the whole fucking city. Only please give her back. I'm sorry I didn't believe. Forty or fifty years from now, according to some, it might hear that. Too late for Anne. Too late even for me. It's still out there, just passing through. It drums its fingers on the ground, and all our reinforced talismans can barely keep it out. Even here, in this underground sanctum, the walls are shaking. It doesn't scare me anymore. There was another time, long ago, when I wasn't afraid. Back then, the shapes in the sky were friendly. Snow-covered mountains, magical kingdoms. Once I even saw Anne up there. But now, I only see something malign and hideous, ancient, Something slow to anger and impossible to appease. In the thousands of years we spent watching the clouds, after all the visions and portents we read there, never once did we see the thing that was really looking back. We see it now. I wonder which epitaphs they'll be reading tomorrow. What city is about to be shattered by impossible tornadoes? How many will die in this fresh onslaught of hailstones and broken glass? I don't know. I don't even care. That surprises me. Just a few days ago, I think it would have mattered. Now, even the realization that we're spared barely moves me to indifference. Jess, how can you sleep through this? The wind tries to uproot us. Bits of God's brain bash themselves against our shelter, and somehow you can just curl up in the corner and block it out. You're so much older than I am, Jess. You learned not to care years ago. Barely any of you shines out anymore. Even the glimpses I catch only seem like old photographs, vague reminders of what you used to be. Do I really love you as much as I tell myself? Maybe all I love is my own nostalgia. I gave you a start, at least. I gave you a few soft years before things fell apart. But then the world split in two, and the part I can live in keeps shrinking. You slip so easily between both worlds. Your whole generation is amphibious. Not mine. There's nothing left I can offer you. You don't need me at all. 
Before long, I'd have dragged you down with me. I won't let that happen. You're half Anne, after all. The maelstrom covers the sound of my final ascent. I wonder what Anne would think of me now. She'd disapprove, I guess. She was too much of a fighter to ever give up. I don't think she had a suicidal thought in her whole life. And suddenly, climbing the stairs, I realize that I can ask her right now if I want to. Anne is watching me from a far, dark corner of the room, through weathered, adolescent eyes opened to mere slits. Is she going to call me back? Is she going to berate me for giving in? Say that she loves me? I hesitate. I open my mouth. But she closes her eyes without a word. There you go. Don't forget, copyright is Peter Watts. And trust, you don't want to trust us. You don't want to mess with Peter Watts. You know what I mean? And actually, I'd love to get Pete on one of these how to write science fiction. You know, with Pete Watts, that would be you know great. If you ever listened to when I got, I think it was last year, we did a writers' workshop, and Pete was one of the guests on there. And just some ideas, you know, the the way his mind thinks, it's kind of it's 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 left of everybody else. You know what I mean? It just doesn't kind of compute the same way. He's got some great ideas, so he would be nice to get on Starship Silver's that how to write science fiction. Next up is. Cheap skates with Adam. Adam, sir. Greetings to my fellow coach class passengers aboard the Starship Sofa. My name is Adam, welcoming you to a special Halloween edition of Cheap Skates. And, uh, bringing you reviews of free science fiction ebooks, audiobooks, and, this week, internet television. Yes, folks, last month I discovered the joys of Hulu, and in particular one fantastic free Hulu-exclusive web series with a deceptively dull title, The Booth at the End. And for folks over in the UK, it sounds like you can actually watch it on FX UK. I'm not exactly sure what genre it's in, as I've never watched a show quite like it, but Hulu calls it science fiction, so I'm going to run with that. The set is about as simple as it gets. A single interior of a standard, inexpensive diner. One of those holdovers from the 50s. But the simple setup belies the deep complexity of the plot and characters struggling with difficult moral issues. Here's the premise. At the booth farthest from the door of the diner, the booth at the end of the title, there sits a nameless man with a book. People come to him and ask him for something they want. He cracks open the book, looks at it for a moment, and tells them what tasks they have to do to be certain that what they want will happen. The only other rule is that they come back to him and describe the experience to him while he takes copious notes. They don't have to do the task. It's always their own choice. And not doing the task doesn't mean what they desire won't happen on its own, either. The audio from this trailer gives a good sense for the flavor of the show. I heard you can do things. I give people the opportunity to do things. But you can make things happen, like magic. There's something you need? I want to be prettier. What we do 
is we make an agreement. What do I have to do? I offer you a task. You do the task, you get what you want. Tasks? So if I do this thing, my son will live. Do you make all the people that come to you harm someone? I need to know one thing. How can I know you're not the devil? You can't. I was wondering what happens if I don't do this thing you asked me to do. I'm not going to rob a bank. Look, I want you to stop her from wanting what she wants. That's not the offer. No, hear me out. I can't. I already killed the guy for you. You want more? What one begins, one must finish. We'll make it stop. I can't. Give me something. A token of proof or something. Start. See what happens. With this basic premise, there's a lot of twisted stuff that happens, and the characters are fascinating. There's James, a man trying to save his son from leukemia, who has been tasked with selecting and killing a little girl. Jenny wants to be prettier and must rob precisely $101,043 from a bank to make it happen for sure. Mrs. Tyler wants her husband cured of Alzheimer's and must build and detonate a bomb in a crowded coffee shop to be sure to have him back. A detective named Alan has to kill a man to find the money from a bank robbery. But not all the tasks are so death-centered. Many are life-affirming, such as Melody, who must befriend a shut-in and get him to go outside, Simon, who must become a father, and Miss Carmel, who must get pregnant and have a baby if she wants to hear God talking to her again. I'm sorry, that should actually be Sister Carmel who has to get pregnant. This variety in tasks and their eventual outcome adds to the intrigue because the motivations of the man are all in shades of gray. You're never sure if he's good or evil, devil or angel. As the story progresses, you discover the characters' lives are far more intertwined than you might expect, and they run into each other, off-screen of course, in dramatic and compelling ways. It's always interesting, too, to see how things turn out. Sometimes the most innocuous tasks have the most disastrous results, and others asked to do terrible things seem to be judged on the morality of their actions than whether they actually do what they're asked. But by far, my favorite plot point and character is Doris, the full-time waitress at the diner with startling blue eyes. Doris interacts with the man after she gets off her shift and is done serving him coffee and pie. She seems to only have a desire to know more about him and foster a relationship. And this, intriguingly, seems to be the one desire that the man is unable to fulfill with his ever-present leather-bound book. In the second season, her mystique deepens, as she seems to suggest the man is a fugitive from a larger group with similar powers, powers which she seems to hold herself to some extent. I once described the booth at the end to a friend as, My dinner with Andre meets Lost, and I think that was actually pretty close to the mark. Each of the two seasons consists of only five episodes at about 25 minutes each, so it's easy to take them all in across just a few days. And it's just about the right length, too. 
There's only so long you can watch this premise before it begins to feel a little repetitive. I'll post a direct link on my blog for you to find the series on Hulu. It's well worth your time, and it's sure to make you think. Now on to today's main review, which I need to set up a little before I get to the review proper. Some of you might remember in the Ray Bradbury Memorial episode, I recommended joining a free online college-level course in fantasy and science fiction at a site called Coursera.org. I hope that some of you were able to join it and that you enjoyed the experience. For myself, while I joined the course, I ran into the same problem that I had in my college Western Civilization course, namely that I'm not a fast enough reader to complete an entire book once a week and still live the rest of my life. In college, fortunately, if you attended the weekly lecture and group sessions and managed to get a decent idea of a book's content, there wasn't much need to read every last word and still get the A grade. On Coursera, with no grade on the line, all that happened was I ended up not reading, participating, or writing essays at all. This makes me sad, but at least it won't wreck any grades or careers. However, there was one book on the reading list for the Coursera class that was held in common with my old Western Civilization course, Mary Wollstonecraft Shelley's Frankenstein. I'd always felt that I'd cheated myself by not getting around to reading the book, either during the class or afterwards, and I consider it a personal failing that the first book titled Frankenstein I read was by Dean Kuntz, not Mary Shelley. Frankenstein has been cited as such a foundational book in the origin and development of science fiction that I feel I should not continue ignoring it. So, at long last, I have finally taken the step of reading and now reviewing Frankenstein. A part of me trembles at the hubris of this act, nearly on an equal with that of Victor Frankenstein himself. Frankenstein is such a classic. Daring as an amateur reviewer to appraise this work that has been analyzed and critiqued to death, pun very much intended, seemed at first to be beyond me. Still, like Victor, I heedlessly forge ahead. I'm hoping, given this audience, that I can dispense with a lot of the detailed background on the author and inspiration for Frankenstein, that Shelley wrote it at just age 18, that it originated as a challenge between Shelley, her future husband Percy Bysshe Shelley, and Lord Byron on a gloomy night in 1816 for them all to write a tale of the supernatural, and the standard correction of the common misconception that applies the name Frankenstein to the creature raised to life, rather than correctly recognizing it as the name of the scientist doing the raising. I don't have to do any of that, right? If you find you really need that background, well, we have Google for a reason, yes? All right, then. Standard background out of the way, I'd like to approach Frankenstein in a similar way to how I took on A Princess of Mars by Edgar Rice Burroughs early on in Cheapskates. With a clean slate, doing my best to remove myself from any bias, and putting forward the disclaimer that because I'm approaching Frankenstein for the first time as an adult, I'm going into it without a lot of the standard nostalgia you might expect otherwise. Frankenstein begins 
for more pages than you might expect, with pages of correspondence from Captain Robert Walton, a character who seems all but forgotten in connection with the novel nowadays. Captain Walton begins by speaking of his own desire to reach the North Pole, possibly even finding an undiscovered paradise tucked away up there. That plot concept is intriguing in itself, and it's something I wish we could have held on with a little longer. In fact, at some point, I think I'd like to do an alternate Frankenstein story exploring just that diversion from the narrative, Captain Walton making it to the North Pole, and what he found there. Ah, actually, forget I said that. Uh, Delete, delete, um, just do me the favor and don't steal that idea, okay? The narrative gets an extra layer of intrigue after Captain Walton's crew sees an enormous figure making its way by dog sled north across the ice sheet. Not long after, the crew picks up the title character of Victor Frankenstein himself, stranded on a melting raft of ice. And after he recovers from near death, we move in another layer into the frame story, with Frankenstein taking over the narrative. Shelley loves playing with these layers, and I have to admit, I like this aspect too. Somehow drilling down and down like this seems to lend credibility, and I enjoy how the style subtly shifts depending on the narrator. The rabbit hole does go pretty deep, at my count five layers deep at its farthest, so it's best not to think too actively about it if it starts hurting your head. As soon as Shelley starts with Frankenstein taking over telling the story in chapter one, however, I found my attention starting to drag substantially, and I struggled to keep with it. After the delicious tease of the monstrous figure spied at a distance, Frankenstein starts his tale with, I am by birth a Genovese, and my family is one of the most distinguished of that republic. My ancestors had been for many years counselors and syndics, and my father had filled several public situations with honor and reputation. For me, it was like meeting someone walking down Main Street, who is followed by a gorilla riding a unicycle. Then you ask his story, and he starts with, Well, it all started when I was a boy back on a dairy farm in Wisconsin. And you just want to say, Hey, get to the part with a gorilla on a unicycle. Yeah, it was kind of like that. That is to say, it's something of a slow burn for somewhere between the first one-third and one-half of the book, giving a lot of background of family, education, and early life experience. This information ultimately ends up being essential to the rising conflict and climax of the book, but it's a long haul in the middle of it. During this time, the style of language, archaic sounding to our modern ears, can be a significant hurdle. Your other hurdle might be sheer frustration with Victor and his behavior. You actually want to start off liking him. He's intelligent, curious, and ambitious. Not at all the sadistic monster I'd half expected based off of Dean Kuntz's version of the tale. But as he goes through his education, and especially after he discovers the key to the reanimation of dead flesh, you get pretty fed up with his irresponsible behavior. You'd think that after discovering the ability to build and reanimate a corpse, he might, I don't know, mention to one of his mentors, hey, by the way, 
I can make dead people live now. Instead, he just forges ahead and builds himself a man from scrap and never seems to stop and question whether this is entirely a good idea. He's not so much a mad scientist as a reckless one. Imagine your teenage son going off to college, and instead of getting in trouble with drugs and alcohol, he instead goes and starts creating life willy-nilly, then proceeds to abandon that creation and do everything in his power to forget he did it because he gets freaked out by what he's done. That's the image you should have in your head. And frankly, I find teenager with power over life and death a more frightening prospect than the traditional mad scientist any day. Dad, we did something very bad. Did you wreck the car? No. Did you raise the dead? Yes. But the car's okay. Uh-huh. All right, then. You really, really want to sympathize with Frankenstein. But he makes such astoundingly bad choices, is so mind-boggling oblivious to the consequences of his actions, and can't properly interpret glaringly plain warnings from his creation, that by the finale, you feel that Victor got what he deserved, even if his friends and family got a raw deal. I, for one, actually ended up sympathizing more with Frankenstein's monster than with Frankenstein. He starts out being kinder and more human than Victor, and ends up being smarter and more clever than his creator. There's rather a lot of flowery text, especially when Victor gets into one of his self-pitying monologues. Victor himself seems to recognize how out of hand he gets at times, interrupting himself at one point with, But I forget that I am moralizing in the most interesting part of my tale, and your looks remind me to proceed. He does, throughout the tale, do an awful lot of alassing and woe-is-me-ing. However, there are many passages of astonishing, beautiful prose, my favorite being the description of Frankenstein's monster awakening. It was on a dreary night of November, that I beheld the accomplishment of my toils. With an anxiety that almost amounted to agony, I collected the instruments of life around me, that I might infuse a spark of being into the lifeless thing that lay at my feet. It was already one in the morning, the rain pattered dismally against the panes, and my candle was nearly burnt out, when, by the glimmer of the half-extinguished light, I saw the dull yellow eye of the creature open, It breathed hard, and a convulsive motion agitated its limbs. How can I describe my emotions at this catastrophe, or how delineate the wretch whom with such infinite pains and care I had endeavored to form? His limbs were in proportion, and I had selected his features as beautiful. Beautiful! Great God! His yellow skin scarcely covered the work of muscles and arteries beneath. His hair was of a lustrous black and flowing, his teeth of a pearly whiteness, but these luxuriances only formed a more horrid contrast with his watery eyes that seemed almost of the same color as the dun white sockets in which they were set, his shriveled complexion and straight black lips. Ah, you can just see it, can't you? Another aspect of the book that surprised me was just how much geography and nature plays a role in the novel. Almost its own silent character. 
I found it beneficial to pull up images of the locations mentioned in the book as I read. Everything from specific mountains located in the Alps, to the frozen wastes of the Arctic, to the wave-blasted shores of small islands off of Ireland. The scope and grandeur of these locations really enhances the epic plot, making the characters appear smaller against such a huge backdrop. At this point, I'd like to talk a bit about genre. I find it interesting how this is considered the first work of science fiction by many. To a certain extent, yes, I can see the precursors of science fiction, especially because science and the scientist are taking center stage. But at the same time, to borrow an evolutionary metaphor, I see Frankenstein as more of a transitional form rather than the first of its species. Despite movie images of crackling electricity, beeping machinery, and strange dials, there's only the tiniest amount of science present. There's the concept of being able to raise the dead to life, but the technical details are vague, to the point of being basically non-existent. Truly, I saw more of the tradition of romance and melodrama in the work than the beginnings of science fiction. Again, to borrow an evolution metaphor... I never would have looked at this fish and thought it would end up as a man. As I look at the overall work, I come to the conclusion that I ultimately enjoyed the plot, the format, the characters, and the elements that would eventually steer toward science fiction, as fair as they were. But in the end, I didn't enjoy what I saw as the book's ultimate message, that science is a scary, dangerous thing, and that some parts of nature are to be known by God alone. Speaking personally, I think that God has given us intellect and curiosity for a reason. And while there is such a thing as ethical and unethical science, we do the creator and the creation a disservice to classify areas of research as not meant for man to understand. As usual, please feel free to get a discussion going on this either at the Starship Sofa forums or on my own blog site, cheapskatesreview.wordpress.com. One final note, I found it fascinating the number of scenes that I was just certain were in the book, but proved to be completely absent. For example, I thought for sure there was a scene where Frankenstein's monster befriended a little girl and they began to throw pretty flowers into a river. The monster, in his innocence, decides that the little girl is also pretty and would enjoy being thrown into the river. He does so with his unnatural strength, drowning the girl. This entire scene is not there, and for the life of me, I have no idea where I picked it up. And I could swear, just swear that the book ended with a fight mano a mano between Frankenstein and his creation at the very top of the world in the Arctic. Again, it's not there, and I'm baffled where I got the idea. I think it reveals how much the Frankenstein mythos has dyed the fabric of our culture, and how beneficial it can be to go back to the source and judge the work on its own merits. For that reason, if nothing else, I'm glad I took the time for Frankenstein. Frankenstein is about as much in the public domain as you can get, so the internet is quite flooded with options for downloading ebooks. I'll put up a few of the best on my site. 
There are also free audiobook versions on LibriVox.org, and these are all right, although the narration needs to have some stumbles and hesitations cleaned up. However, I'm particularly looking forward to a full cast production that appears to be in progress at the site. I'll link to that site as well so you can keep track of when it's completed. That's all today for Cheapskates. Theme music is from Regarding Your Brains by the great Jonathan Colton under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial License. Today with a bit of uh, Halloweenification by yours truly. You can find Jonathan's work at www.jonathancolton.com. This is Adam, reminding you that free doesn't have to mean cheap. There you go. A very timely cheapskate. Thank you so much, Adam. I just love these. You know, it makes us excited doing Starships, especially when you, you know, the content we've got in there now as well. So that is today's show. I hope you enjoyed it. You know, do spread the word. Do treat yourself to Tales to Terrify Volume 1. That would be lovely if you could. Just helps support. You know, if, what better way to support? We're going to get one of our books. That would be fantastic. And do think about coming to, along to Dual Album. <laughs> Every time I see it, man, it's just unreal. You know what I mean? 11th of November. That would be fantastic. We have done it and tested it and everything's singing and dancing. So that would be fantastic. Hope you can join me there. Big thank you to everyone who's donated. There's a couple of people there. And I'm not going to mention names, but you know who you are. Thank you so much. Honestly, trust us, it was brilliant. Thank you. Until next week, I'd just like to say good night from me. Will our heroes survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Starship Sofa. Evacuation procedure initiated. Shuttle set for launch. Airlock will be opened in three, two, one. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.